Well, welcome everyone. We'll get started here. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again this evening for your grace to us. And we ask your blessings on each member of our class. And we pray you'll help us as we seek to understand this book of 1 Corinthians. Pray for uh, uh, the funeral tomorrow. And we're uh, thankful that our dear sister is with you and enjoying the bliss of heaven. We're thankful for the hope we all have that will one day reside there. So God and direct us this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are looking at um, chapter 10, which is a conclusion to this uh, section where Paul is telling the Corinthians they can no longer attend these temples. It's not that they, as I said, it's not that they wanted to go there to worship, but you can't go there and not worship in the sense of there are sacrifices, there's things going on, you're going to be part of that. So Paul prohibits that. Uh, it starts in verse 14 with this prohibition, you know, my dear friends, flee from idolatry because that's what's behind this, uh, this thing is idolatry. And uh, he uh, first talks about, remember in verse 16 and 17, about the fact that um, uh, the problem is when you go in there and worship this, and when you go to the temple, you're participating with, you are having fellowship. He uses that word participation. And so he, he, he's, he talks first about you know, the Lord's Supper and says when we have the Lord's Supper, we are participating, we are sharing in together uh, in the benefits of Christ's death and so forth. So uh, he's going to use that to illustrate um, this concept of participation with the God, in the case, in our case, the Lord Jesus Christ, and their case with these idol gods. And we stopped last time right at verse 18, if you'll remember. Uh, and he goes now on to have another analogy. He talked about the Lord's Supper. That's a kind of a participation. There's another participation, and that's people in Israel who offered sacrifices. He says in verse 18, uh, consider the people of Israel. Those, do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? So as I say, Paul gives another analogy from the sacred meals in Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice, coin, that's at koin, koinonos. Uh, so here we have the, the noun, the adjective, in the, in, in the altar. So we're talking about Deuteronomy 14 here, where people would bring an offering, in this case, uh, a tenth of all your produce. You eat uh, the grain, the wine. So you go there and make the offering, but you also uh, have a part in, you know, in eating there also. Um, so this, this is arguing about Deuteronomy 14, when you get into the land, you know, this is what you're going to do when you get to the temple and so forth. They'll choose the dwelling place for you. Um, but this language of eat the sacrifices here refers to the meal that followed the annual, the actual sacrifice in which the you know, people of Israel ate together uh, a portion of the sacrificial food. Um, and so this meal bound them up in worship of Yahweh, you know, the Lord in the Old Testament. And so that's the point. When you go there and you have those meals in the temple, you're having participation, you're worshiping, uh, you're having fellowship with this idol. I say here it seems likely that the reason Paul has added this example from Israel 
after the Lord's Supper is that it's more closely parallel to the pagan meals, which also involves sacrifice. I mean, we have the Lord's Supper. We're not sacrificing anything. We're just participating. We're sharing in that it's, it's close to that and followed by a meal in which the sacrificial food was eaten. The Lord's Supper was only an analogy of a sacrificial meal. Uh, you know, Christ offered himself once for all, so it's not the best analogy. It's an analogy. <laughs> it's a memorial of a once, and all sac all, once for all sacrifice. But this is even better. <laughs> you know, uh, the people of Israel, that's a good analogy of what it's like to offer a sacrifice and then participate in the altar. Verse 19, do I mean then the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? I say beginning in verse 19, Paul will now apply the analogies of verses 16 and 18, but he has to correct a possible misunderstanding from the preceding argument. When he says, do I mean then the food sacrificed to an idol is anything? The intended response is, of course not. There's a sense in which Christians participate in the body and blood of Christ because we benefit from the broken body and shed blood. But this does not mean that Paul allows there is any genuine significance to the food eaten at pagan meals as if it were actually sacrificed to a God, to a real God. Um, so on this point, you know, Paul agrees with the Corinthians that an idol has no reality. Uh, it's not, the idol is not truly a God. There's a big difference between you know, Israel and what we're doing in the, in the Lord's Supper and what they're doing. Um, but what the, what the Corinthians have failed to discern here, and I've mentioned before, is that um, because we say that an idol is not a god does not mean that it does not represent supernatural powers. So it's true, the idol is just a wood, hay, wood stone, something, uh, metal, you know, or stone image, but it represents something supernatural. Um, and Paul will, is going to explain that now here in verse 20. Notice what he says. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. So on the contrary, Paul reminds the Corinthians, the preceding argument does not imply reality to the idols, since the idols do not exist. The Corinthians do not become partners with idols. The Corinthians do, become, do not become partners with idols, but demons do exist, and pagan sacrifice is demonic. Paul's language is from Deuteronomy 32, 17. They sacrificed the demons and were no, they were, that were no gods. That truth from Scripture leads Paul to the heart of the answer, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is saying this food that's sacrificed in these pagan meals has been sacrificed to a, just a, a god, yes, a god image, but it's really sacrificed to demons. So that means people who participate in this are sharing with demons in the same way that Israel, when they sacrificed, shared with God. They sacrifice to God. These are sacrificing to demons. Um, so they're sacrificed to demons, and that clearly should be uh, seen as you know invalid and something they shouldn't do. Uh, one who is you know bound to the Lord and connected you know serves the Lord should not be serving demons. Verse twenty one: You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So this blunt language, I say, you know, continues here. He emphasizes you can't drink the cup of the Lord, the cup of demons. You can't be a part of the table, table of demons. So this is a warning, but it's a prohibition, obviously. Um, you know, you, these are just totally incompatible actions. So even though they would say, we're just eating with friends when we go to the temple, you know. Uh, one is engaged in idolatry, Paul says. Idolatry that involves the worship of demons. So it's really not acceptable for Christians. Verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? The argument now comes to a conclusion with a final set of questions. Although questions, you know, 
they really amount to a strong word of warning. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy or are stronger than he? In the original language, the questions are joined uh, but to the preceding by or, which implies they offer some kind of alternative, verse 21. So that by the first question, Paul is saying, or will you continue eating at both, meal, at both meals and thus arouse the Lord's jealousy as Israel did in the desert? It's not exactly clear what Paul means in the final question, are we stronger than he? Most likely this is the final warning that God's jealousy cannot be challenged with impunity. Um, you know, those who insist on putting God to the test by going to these temples and engaging in idolatry are in effect taking God on. You're saying, I'm stronger than God. You're challenging Him. You're daring Him to act. Um, do you, and he's saying, are you think you're so strong to challenge God Himself? Um, so this is rather foolish. And Paul will is, is clearly saying that you know, to, you, if you do this, you could fail of the eschatological prize or, you know, the whole point. Remember, he's worried that, that this is an indicate this sinful behavior is behavior that is not the kind of behavior you would expect from a Christian and is troublesome, to say the least. Well, Paul moves on now to talk about the eating of marketplace food. Paul has now basically finished his argument with the Corinthians over the assertions in their letter related to the attendance of temple meals. They wanted to go. They said they could go. They should be able to go. Eating sacrificial food at the temple is absolutely forbidden because it involves the worship of idols and the demons behind them. There's nothing wrong with the food itself. It's the place where it's eaten. But that still leaves the issue of meat that is sold in the marketplace, which apparently Paul himself had been known to eat. At least that passage you remember we looked at in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says when I'm with the Gentiles you know to those not having the law became one not having the law yeah when I'm with the Jews I'm perfectly kosher you know I observe kosher laws I don't eat certain foods uh, but when I'm with the Gentiles I don't observe those things so you know Paul had uh, apparently you know they knew he had eaten this kind of, this meat that had been once sacrificed. I see almost all meat sold for human consumption in the Greco-Roman world came from the leftovers of pagan sacrifices. Meat was really rare, actually, from what I, everything I read. The average person wouldn't, wealthy people would, but I mean, the average person would not have much meat at all, except <laughs> when they went to the temple or something. That was one reason to go. You would have better food, more food, at these civic festivals, state festivals, special days. I say there were no slaughterhouses and packing plants for cattle, sheep, or pigs. You know, it was all done in the temple, except for Jews. Jews slaughtered and prepared their own meat. So they observed that, but Gentiles didn't really have access to that. I say the nature of the Corinthians' argument for eating at the temples has revealed a basic confusion between absolutes and non-essentials. That is, non-moral issues. The Corinthians had tried to make temple attendance a non-essential, but for Paul it was an absolute because it was idolatry. And at the same time, remember, they had confused the basis for our Christian behavior. Uh, for them, you know, it was a matter of knowledge. I know this and I have these rights. For Paul, it's a matter of love. And because I love my brother, I'm free to give up rights and so forth. Um, so the bottom line is, you know, you know, is, uh, I mean, the ultimately non-Christian position is selfishness. You know, freedom to do as I please. Love and freedom lead to edification, and uh, that's the bottom line for the Christian. Paul, I say, now addresses these issues by using concrete examples from food purchased in the meat market. Two settings are involved. Food purchased for eating in one's own home, 25 through 26, 
an invitation to meals in a neighbor's home, 27 through 29a. So now he's quoting the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So Paul quotes the Corinthians again using that same language in 6.12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. One of the loose ends from the preceding argument is the Corinthians' insistence on rights. The insistence on rights is especially related to Paul's own freedom to eat idle food sold in the meat market. So what follows here is not simply a defense of his actions on the matter. He, he's about to set up his own attitudes uh, toward food as a model for Christian behavior. This is how he approaches food and he sees this as a model. And he says this goes back to Christ because the last point will be the example of Christ. I follow the example of Christ. So I say here, as it, it did in 612, the slogan, I have the right to do anything, receives a double qualification. The first of which is an exact duplication of 612. Not everything is beneficial. It refers to what is beneficial for someone else. This is made clear by the second qualification, which does not make a new point, but reinforces the first. But not everything is constructive. The word constructive means spiritually constructive, to edify someone else. So remember for the Corinthians, we talked about this. For them, rights means the right to act in freedom as they saw fit. For Paul, as with his own rights, as we've seen here and so forth, and uh, it meant the right to become a slave, uh, verse 19 there. Uh, it meant the right to become a slave uh, or the right to benefit and build up others in the body as he sees it. Verse 24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. The qualification about rights in verse 23 is now repeated in a general admonition. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Consequently, freedom does not mean to seek my own good. It means to be free in Christ in such a way that one can truly seek to benefit and build up another person. These are fine-sounding words, but they're not easy to live by, are they? I mean, <laughs> we're just inherently sinful, and we look out for our own interests, you know, and it takes a lot of sanctification and daily, daily work to try to put this into practice, not to seek our own good doesn't mean we should seek something that's evil for us, or doesn't mean we shouldn't try to, but it does mean that, that we should be concerned about the spiritual well-being of others more than our own um, pleasures and things like that. Verse 25, he says, Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. The concern of verses 25 through 30 is personal freedom with regard to non-essentials. On these matters, one's truly free. On the other hand, such freedom is not the ultimate good in a believer's life. There is, therefore, one may also freely abstain in contests where someone else is concerned. That seems to be why Paul begins with the admonition of verse 24. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Because even in matters of personal freedom, this, has, this must always be in view. But what this admonition does, do, does not do is lead to rules or obligations of abstinence as a general matter of course. So Paul begins here with the criterion of the good of others, verse 24, but he now establishes, um, he begins to establish um, that freedom really is that. When he says freedom, um, you know, he's talking about freedom. Uh, he, he's saying here that one's own personal freedom should not be judged by others. So <clears throat> we're supposed to do what's good for others, 
but we're free to eat anything, the Corinthians are, sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. So I say here, since most all meat in Corinth came from pagan temples, what is the Christian to do about obtaining meat for their own meals? Paul simply says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. So as I've said, you know, with this meat that they would get in the meat market, if they bought meat, would be butchered by a pagan priest, uh, much of it, you know, having been offered as a sacrifice. Um, and this meat was, remember, well, according to what we know from Jewish rabbis, and they were strictly forbidden from buying this kind of meat, eating this kind of meat in Paul's day. Um, in fact, what you know, the rabbis say, or what we know, it was apparently even required that Jews ask about this kind of thing. That is, if they got hold of some meat, they had to find out, is this you know, pagan meat, has this been offered to an idol? They had to inquire. But Paul's saying, no, don't inquire. <laughs> don't ask any questions at all. Meat is meat. Buy it and eat it. Um, this lies outside the matter of conscience. It's not a matter of conscience. Verse 26, For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The word for indicates that Paul is now giving the basis for his view of the Christian's freedom when it comes to marketplace food. He does so by citing Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is the passage used by the rabbis to support their contention that a blessing must be said over every meal because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We should thank God for our food. So by citing this passage, you know, Paul seems to be reflecting the Jewish use of the text, as I say, for the blessing over meals, especially when he refers to it again in verse 30. Uh, he talks about the thanksgiving um, in verse 30. If I take part with thanksgiving or thankfulness, uh, if I take part with thankfulness with giving a, by thanking God for it, then there's nothing sinful about the food. There's no, no reason why I can't partake of the food. Um, now, the, the rabbis use this text, um, as I say, uh, to justify the need for giving thanks to God before eating food. But for them, it was food that had been thoroughly investigated before they prayed. <laughs> Paul now uses this same text that they use to say, no, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it is just food. And you don't, you know, there's no reason you can't eat it um, because the ultimate source of this food is, this, is our sovereign God. Um, uh, he's sovereign over all things and that everything he's created is good. And so he's provided this food and so forth. Um, so, um, you know, idle food leaves is, leaves, loses its, um, its character as idle food as soon as it leaves the temple. It's no longer idle food. It's only idle food when it's, when it's, it's only forbidden food when it's there in the temple. So it can be taken with thanksgiving. So, um, so there's one part of it. So the part is, there's nothing wrong with the food, as we've been saying, and this shows it. And so the Corinthians, the, Paul's problem with the Corinthians is not the Jewish problem. The Jewish problem is you can't eat this food because it's, it's just bad food. It's not kosher food. Uh, it's, it, if it's any way connected with idolatry, it's bad. It can't be eaten. That's not Paul's point, remember. Paul's point is the place where it's eaten. The food itself is not contaminated by having been in the temple. But here's another issue that might come up. Verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So here's this new situation where a Corinthian might you know, encounter this idle food, this idle meat from the meat market, that's in, where you're invited to someone else's home. 
So in this case, there's no question about who the invitation come from. It comes from one of the unbelievers, he says. Notice Paul says it's perfectly acceptable to accept the invitation and in the language almost identical to his advice about eating meat at home, he says, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Uh, so when one buys, you know, when one buys food for yourself, the issue, the, the question arises at the shop. And now the, now the question, and when, you know, when you're at the shop, you, you can buy it and you don't worry about it. But now you're at someone else's table. You're a guest. Uh, but the point is, in either case, you don't inquire about the food. When you go to the shop, you don't say, "Is this food? was this food offered at some idol temple? You don't ask the meat market guy. And when you go to a pagan's house and he serves you this food, this meat, you don't ask questions about it. You don't, you know, a Jew, a Jew wouldn't even go. Jewish person wouldn't even go, but you don't raise issues about it, you know. But, verse 28, here it is. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, notice, then do not eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For Paul, personal freedom is not absolute. It's always conditioned by the rule of verse 24, seeking the good of another. So he uses this second instance to offer a hypothetical example of a situation where the principle of verse 24, seeking the good of another, in this case, another person who raises this issue, this has been offered and sacrifice, would limit one's freedom. The first issue that we need to resolve here interpreting is the identity of the person Paul is thinking of when he says, if someone says to you, the Christian, this has been offered in sacrifice. We could be talking about the host who invited the believer, a pagan fellow guest, or a Christian fellow guest. The least likely is a fellow believer. Uh, if, you know, a believer who would raise such a question wouldn't even come to the meal. You know, if, if, a, if another Christian is there and they have a problem with the food, they're not even going to show up. They're not going to show up and tell you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice. So that's the least likely. Um, Also unlikely is the, the word that Paul uses, uses a different word here. He says, this has been offered in sacrifice. Um, this is not the word we've been talking about, idolothuton, which is food sacrificed in the temple. Um, this, is, uh, this is the word that pagans would use to refer to food sacrificed to an idol. In other words, the word we've been talking about, adolothuton, that when we said food sacrificed to idols, food sacrificed to idols, um, that has a very negative connotation. But this other word is something pagans would use, which they don't see anything negative about. So when the, when the, when the person says, this has been offered in sacrifice, He's not saying something uh, negative. You know, he's just informing you, hey, Christian, this has been offered you know, at the temple. He's not making a, a judgment about you know, that it's idle food or it's terrible or anything like that. Um, that leads us to think that this is probably then an unbeliever who says this. Um, and it's unlikely it's the host, because he says, but if someone says to you, it's not the host, it's someone. So I'll say here, so most likely the someone whom Paul is thinking of is another guest who was himself a pagan. But why would this pagan guest raise an issue as to the source of the meat? 
The most likely answer here, why a pagan would say this to this Christian, and well, I don't know absolutely, but a, I think a very likely answer, most commentators think the answer is that the pagan's trying to help the Christian out. You know, they know this person's a Christian, and, uh, you know, Christians don't go to the temple. They don't eat this kind of stuff. You know, they don't go to the temple and they're against idolatry. And, and they're just saying, hey, you know, uh, Joe, <laughs> this has uh, been sacrificed. This is sacrificial. This has been offered in a sacrifice. Just want to let you know that. Um, I mean, because Gentiles, Gentiles would know they all knew Jewish scruples about food. Commonly known that Jews don't eat our food. They have these, they, they just won't touch it. And the, and the thinking would be Jews and Christians are just like, what's the difference? They're just the same kind of breed, you know. So, the, so the, 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 the pagan might think, hey, friend, you know, this has been, you know, <laughs> this is not kosher food, you know, that you're eating here. Um... So that might be, that, that seems to be the best explanation of why the unsaved person would say this and use the terminology that they use, uh, the different word for offered and sacrifice here, which was a common word used by the pagans for their sacrifices and so forth. Um, I say then here, um, but if this is a pagan guess, which I think most people think it is, we must determine how the pagan's conscience would be affected um, by what a Christian did or not do. Don't eat both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Uh, how would this pagan's conscience be affected by what the Christian did or not do? Paul argues that in this case, the believer should not eat both for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, which is immediately clarified in 29a, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So we're talking about the pagan's conscience in the terms of right and wrong. So you're going to reframe, you're going to refrain because of the pagan's idea of right and wrong. Um, so this person, so the idea probably is this person, this pagan who's at the meal with you knows, you know, scruples, Jewish scruples about food and you're Christian and so forth. And they're probably trying to help the Christian out. Uh, so uh, he, he's doing so out of probably a moral obligation to the Christian. He's trying to he, he, you know, he doesn't want the Christian to violate their morals. You know, Christians, Christians are like Jews. They don't eat this stuff, you know. And we know you don't eat this, and I'm just telling you that this has been sacrificed. You know, I'm trying to help you out and so forth. Um, so apparently Paul says here, in that case, you know, uh, it's better not to eat it. Um because you want to maintain a positive testimony, um, a, a good image of moral consistency um, in the pagan's eyes. You don't want to be a poor witness. The pagan sees this as something Christians shouldn't do. You know? Now, they're, you know, they don't understand the, the delicacies here that we've been talking about, but the pagan sees this as something that Christians shouldn't do and um, and they're and they uh, they're and and so um, they're pointing that out. And Paul says, "Okay, in that case, it's probably best not to, um, you know, not to get into a more, I guess, a moral dialogue here. Uh, in this case, there's nothing wrong with it. But but you know, unbelievers do have." Well, they used to have. I guess they still, <laughs> they still, they, they used to, they had, they had, maybe you've run into this before, where unbelievers do believe Christians have a certain morality, a certain, you know, moral concepts. 
and they sometimes try not to violate them by not cussing in front of you and not you know using foul language maybe or something like that um, and so uh, that might be what's what's going on here um, a Christian can abstain from this Paul can say don't do it because it's not a matter of moral consciousness you know it's it's not really it's just we're trying to we're trying to do what's best for the, our for the Christian testimony and for this person, this person thinks a Christian shouldn't do it. Okay, I'm not going to do it in this particular case because it's 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 not a matter of right and wrong, and I can go either way. I, I, it doesn't really make any difference. Then we come to verse 29b and 30. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? As I say, these questions are rather difficult, a little difficult. Um, the best solution seems to take the two questions here in 29b and 30 as responses to verse 27 after the somewhat parenthetic interruption uh, of 2829A. So what I'm saying here is um, it may be that um, we should look at verses 29B and 30 as sort of tying back into verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience if I take part in a meal with thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of something? Probably ties back to that. And this 21 is sort of a parenthetical interruption. That's what I'm trying to explain here. Um, so in verse 20, 1027, uh, in verse 1027, we learn that Paul gives the Corinthians the latitude to attend a dinner given by an unbeliever without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put you without raising questions of conscience. He then interrupts this thought with a parenthetical observation that if the pagan guest announces that the food has been offered in sacrifice to an idol, they are to abstain from eating. The conscience does, does come into play in this situation, that is the conscience of the pagan. But then in 29b, 30, Paul returns to the thought of verse 27 to explain why it's permissible to eat whatever is served in an unbeliever's house. If one can partake with thankfulness to the one true God, how can one be denounced? Why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience for eating that over which one has said a prayer of thanksgiving? A Christian who can genuinely give thanks for this food and has no thought or intention to engage in idolatry need not worry about his own conscience in eating the food. That seems, to, I think, probably the best way to tie these things together. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So we have an inferential so, so then, so therefore. Paul now in 1031 through 11.1 begins, brings to a conclusion his discussion of the idol food in chapters 8 through 10. He begins with the imperatives of these two verses. Paul is dealing with the question of a Christian's conduct in non-essential matters, which began with the principle that the Christian does not seek his own good, but that of his neighbor, his one's own neighbor. However, that should not be taken as eliminating personal freedom. Uh, Paul used this, this example of marketplace food and he insisted on freedom in this matter, which has nothing to do with the Christian conscience. It's not a moral matter, really. Uh, the blessing that you offer at the meal prior is, uh, means that no fellow Christian should condemn you because you're eating this. Uh, so Paul now concludes, in light of that, two imperatives must control the Christian behavior on such questions. First, everything must be to the glory of God. 
do all for the glory of God. And second, one must not cause anyone to stumble, Jew, pagan, or fellow believer. So verse 31 picks up this theme of freedom and gives it focus. So whatever we do, whatever this freedom we have, you know, we have freedom. Whatever this freedom is, um, um, what, it, what it is, yes, how can I say that? Um, what, what is, what is uh, not, what is not or cannot be for God's glory is probably something we should exclude. He says, whatever you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So if we can't do it, you know, with that as our view, that this is, this is uh, for the glory of God, this, is, this does not bring dishonor on God, then we probably shouldn't do it. Um, so it, it kind of gives that idea of freedom focus. There's always Christians who will take the idea of Christian freedom too far, and you know that can always happen. And say I'm I have freedom, I can do this, I can do that. But so it's got to be control, and here's one controlling factor. It's got to be for the glory of God. Um, then verse 32 has another limitation of this freedom in terms of how it affects uh, others. That is, you're free, but don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Um, I say here, it might seem that the imperative, verse 32, would render ineffective the preceding instruction on the Christian's personal freedom. How can one live so as to not offend someone from one of these categories? Uh, Jews, Greeks, the church of God. Two things need to be noted here. First, Paul's point is concerned with behavior that's intentional. That is, with regard to eating, drinking, etc. One is not purposely to pursue a path that is to the detriment of another. So we don't intentionally, you know, we don't intentionally pursue behavior that's to the detriment of the other. Second, we have to understand the Greek word translated cause someone to stumble, sometimes translated offend, you know, in some translation. It doesn't mean to hurt one's feelings. Uh, the NIV translate does not, do not cause anyone to stumble. This means to stumble into sin. So, um, so, um, it's, as I say, a strong expression meaning to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the gospel or to alienate someone who is already a brother or sister. Um, so as these next two verses will, 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 uh, will show, uh, he's going to call, them, call on them to follow his example, the example he spelled out in chapter 9. That, so they have this freedom but it has to be regulated by what's for the glory of God. And we shouldn't do that which would cause another person to fall into sin, to stumble, stumble spiritually. Um, it's not talking about just, you know, I don't like it. It's offensive. You know, I don't, I don't like it. We'll, I'll talk about that in a second here. Even as I try to please someone in every way, uh, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul, Paul now offers himself as an example of the kind of conduct he is urging on others. His statement is, even as I try to please everyone in every way, along with the final purpose clause, so that, may be, so that they may be saved, indicates he's saying something just like he said in, verse, in chapter 9, that passage we read several times verses 20 through 22. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to please everyone. I'm not seeking my own good. I'm seeking their good so they can be saved. Um, 
now, you know, we shouldn't, we, obviously we know that uh, any idea of pleasing people in the context of evangelism is really anathema to Paul. Remember, Paul says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God. We're not trying to please people, but God. Galatians 1, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to win the approval of human beings. So uh, when we talk about pleasing people, and Paul says, I try to please everyone, um, he's not talking about, uh, you know, uh, doing whatever they wish, uh, whatever they desire for every single wish. He's talking about, I'm trying to please people so that they can be saved. Um, he's not trying to win the approval of people. He's not trying to please people to win their approval. Um, as he says here, I, if I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Um, so, in, in, you know, what he's talking about here is the kind of conduct that, uh, that characterized itinerant philosophers in Paul's day, religious charlatans, people who would curry, try to curry favor with people to gain their approval. I mean, that can happen in religious circles, too, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know. We, you know, we, <laughs> I don't go to every church, so I don't know what's going on, you know. But you read about things about uh, churches or pastors or teachers where they, they, they teach in such a way so they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want, you know, they don't want, it's with the scripture, they, you know that kind of thing, so that they can win their favor and so forth. Uh, so Paul's talking about pleasing people, but, but in the case of, in order for their, to bring about their salvation, not uh, watering down the gospel, not being afraid to say, say to tell the truth. Um, um, but he was trying to, knock down any barriers to, uh, knock down any unnecessary barriers to people receiving Christ or hearing the gospel. 11.1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Unfortunate that the chapter division here done in the, you know, 13th century uh, is misplaced since it's clearly the imperative of this verse is meant to conclude Paul's previous discussion it's not enough for Paul that he appeals to his own example that Corinthians are to follow or imitate the example, that example, in the same way that he imitates Christ. So the emphasis here is primary on the example of Christ, which for Paul finds its primary focus, you know, in his sacrifice on the cross. Um, so Christ's example was putting other people's needs, obviously, ahead of his own, putting other people's freedom, ahead of his own freedom and rights <clears throat> in order to secure salvation and that's what Paul was doing. That was the motivating force. All right, let's go on and talk about chapter 11 now, or 11-2. As I say, remember the chapter divisions aren't inspired and Stephen Langdon in the 13th century put those chapter divisions into the Latin Vulgate and we're kind of stuck with them, you know. I remember Acts 21 in the King James, the last verse ends in a comma, I think it is. <laughs> now that's, that's a little strange. Isn't it? <laughs> but the chapter divisions were put in before, you know, the verse divisions were and so forth. It makes sense, though, to do that. Look at all the stuff that goes on in the royal today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, let's look at propriety in public worship. Paul has strongly uh, prohibited the Corinthians from being involved in pagan worship. Now he takes up three <clears throat> items of abuse in the Corinthian church. First in 11, 2 through 16 is the issue concerning women's head covering when praying and prophesying. Second in 11, 17 through 34 is the problem of the abuse at, of the poor 
at the Lord's table. Third in chapters 12 through 14 is the abuse of speaking in tongues in the church. So we'll look at women's proper head covering. I say here, when people today read this passage and think of this covering, they often incorrectly associate it with the word veil. This is unfortunate since it tends to call to mind the full veil of some contemporary Muslim cultures where veils cover everything but the eyes. Or we might think possibly of the burqa, which is worn in Afghanistan and covers the whole head. This type of veil was unknown in ancient times, at least from the evidence we have in paintings and sculpture. From what we can learn from the writings of the New Testament era and the statues and artwork that have survived, the covering Paul has referenced to was either the loose end of an outer garment or a separately loosely fitting linen cloth worn over the top of the head much like a modern-day scarf. Here's a couple of examples. <clears throat> Sometimes it was the garment itself, I suppose like you'd say, like a hoodie attached to a thing, <laughs> you know. Sometimes it was that kind of thing women wore. And sometimes it seems, to, you know, that that's just another picture. So it was either just a separate, like a scarf-like thing, or it might have been just part of the garment itself. We have pictures of both of those kinds of things. In Paul's day, the head covering was just that, a head covering only. <clears throat> now, the Greek word uncovered in verse 5 and the word cover in verse 6 and 7 clearly in indicate an external covering. <clears throat> I mean, over the years... You've heard, may have heard people say, well, the covering is the woman's hair. I could say more about that, but <laughs> that just won't do. The Greek word refers to an external covering. You cover something with something else, not, not your hair. It's not your hair. So the covering is not the woman's hair. It's some sort of external covering like in, you know, these pictures here. That's what we're talking about. The common practice in the Roman world was for married women to wear a head covering in public. The head covering made it clear to everyone that a woman was married. <clears throat> the thin scarf or head covering symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission to her husband. It was one way in which a wife honored her husband. But a new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world, one who rebelled against the cultural milieu that allowed husbands, but not wives, to be sexually promiscuous. One way in which wives would flaunt that freedom was by removing their head covering. Some women in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, were discarding their head covering in the assembly. <clears throat> Paul considers the woman's action shameful and for that reason, he offers a theological reason for maintaining, notice, the custom of head coverings for Christian wives while praying or prophesying during a time of public worship. To deliberately remove her head covering in such a setting would identify her with promiscuous women. All right. Paul begins with a statement of praise here. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Having exhorted the Corinthians to, imi to imitate his imitation of Christ, Paul now commends the Corinthians for doing so with regard to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. However, these words of praise are surprising <laughs> in light of what has gone on before in the previous 10 chapters. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? Yet we should remember that though the Corinthians had problems, they were not an apostate church. And we see, that's a hard thing to remember that, you know, things seem so bad when you read those first 10 chapters. You wonder, man, 
Are these people really Christians? Well, apparently, you know, most of them are. Paul has doubts, you know, some doubts, but uh, but they had, they did keep some traditions. They did, you know, so he's praising them at the beginning. But there is a problem about the wives, some wives at Corinth were disregarding this traditional head covering. And Paul <clears throat> sees something in this custom, a theological principle, so he's willing, as we'll see, to argue for the custom. Well, what is this thing, the principle of subordination? But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman, or wife, is a man, and the head of Christ is God. In spite of the fact that the Corinthians have kept some teachings or traditions, they haven't kept them all. So Paul begins in verse 3 with a but. But, he says, there are certain things you need to know. What he wants them to know takes the form of a theological statement or principle that will serve as the point of reference for the conclusion that immediately follows in verses 4 through 6. The theological statement or principle is this. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman or the wife is man. Um, and the head of God of Christ is God. The statement is in three parts. Each word, head, metaphor, uh, using each word, using the word head metaphorically or figuratively to express a different relationship. Man-Christ relationship, woman-man relationship, or Christ-God relationship. Now, Greek does not have a separate word for woman and wife. Instead, a single word, gune, is used for both, and only context can tell which is meant. The same is true for the man, that is, for a male. Uh, it can be a male, a man, or a husband. So you have to tell by context whether the word on air is speaking about a man or a particular kind of man, a husband. Or whether we're talking about a woman or a particular kind of woman, a wife. In this uh, passage, I think, it, I'm, I feel pretty, conf pretty confident that the word gune we're talking about refers specifically to the wife in 3, 5, 6, 10, and 13. Some translations will translate here the word woman as wife in verse 3. We, we just read there. <clears throat> so with this statement, Paul is setting forth the principle of subordination. The word head means authority over. We can compare Paul's usage in 120, Ephesians 1.22. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head, the authority over everything for the church. For the husband is the head of the wife. Colossians 1.18, And He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, so forth. Paul is saying that Christ is the authority over every man. Man is the authority over the woman, and in this case the wife. And the woman is the authority over Christ. Since Paul appeals to the relationship between two members of the Trinity, in this case the Father and the Son, it's clear that he does not view the relationship described in this verse as merely cultural. I said the head covering is cultural, custom. But the relationship is not cultural or the result of the fall. <clears throat> so this is the relationships we're talking about here are... Uh, God to Christ is not a result of the fall. I say this principle of subordination is still valid today. Paul's main point is the second clause. The head of the woman or the wife is man. So why the other two clauses? Probably they're included to explain and clarify the second clause. In other words, the clause might be controversial as well as misunderstood. So that's the one that might be most of that. The husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain it in terms of these other two relationships. 
Christ becomes the model for the husband's headship over his wife since he is the head of every man. By being in submission to his father, Christ, Christ is also the model for the wife's submission to her husband. The wife's submission to her husband involves no inferiority of her person or nature any more than Christ's submission to the Father suggests any inferiority. We understand, of course, that God has authority over Christ in a functional sense, functional, not ontological. So God, the Father, and the Son are equal in honor, glory. They're ontologically, as far as their being, equal in all aspects, but they function. The Father sends the Son. Son doesn't send the Father. So the same thing in this functional sense. Remember this, remember this verse is Paul's main point. The principle of subordination is the key to what Paul says. Paul, People get caught up in details and miss the main point, which is subordination of the wife to the husband. The head covering must be maintained in Corinth in that culture because for a wife to refuse to wear it meant she was not submitting to her husband. All right, let's stop there and we'll get to the nitty gritty, although we got some controversial there, but we'll get to the nitty gritty next time. All right, thank you so much. What is the day, the 15th? 3, 15. Oh.